thousand people begin to file into Wembley Stadium in London, England. They were there to celebrate the momentous changes that had taken place in South Africa. Well, in this venue, there were many musical groups, many well-known musical groups, of which were of uh, rock bands like that of Guns N' Roses, and for 12 hours straight, they played and rocked out that night. People celebrating. The crowd was mostly, as people had said, was basically high from alcohol and drugs, having a good time, I guess. And, um, and then something unusual happened. Um, an unexpected musical guest took the stage. A woman by the name of Jessie Norman, who was a well-known opera singer, was asked by the promoters of the venue to come and to be able to sing a well-known song, Amazing Grace, and to sing it a cappella. While she took the stage, everybody was kind of clearing everything off. All the other band members were leaving, and the crowd began to kind of grow kind of restless and begin to shout out for their favorite bands, and some began to cheer for Guns N' Roses, wanting them to come out just for one more song. While all of this was going on, uh, there was Jesse Norman just in the middle of all this, and one spotlight came down to shine right down on her, and as it did, she very slowly very simply, began to sing these words. She began to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And as she began to sing that song, something strange kind of began to happen. All of a sudden, a hush began to grow over this riotous-type crowd. And by the time she began to sing this second verse, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved, the soprano understood that she had the whole crowd in her hands. Then she began to move on to the third verse, and she began to sing, "'Tis grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home." At this particular point, tens of thousands of people begin to join and stand and sing this amazing hymn. Then all of them, it seemed, all, almost in unison, begin to sing, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Somebody asked Jesse Norman afterwards, what in the world happened? How does she describe the power that seemed to be flowing through that place that night? And she said, honestly, I have no idea. It was completely and fully unexpected. Well, Jesse Norman may not understand what power was at work that night, but I think I do. I think what has happened is that that crowd begin to pontificate, begin to think on the amazing grace of an almighty God. Now, I know that there are some folks here today that this is kind of all new to you again. I, I get that. We have, we have believers in Jesus Christ. We have those that would not claim to be so. We have churchgoers. We have those that rarely ever come into a church. We, we, we get that. And again, once again, we're, we're so, so glad that you are here. But the truth is, is that probably if you, if, you lived, uh, if you lived in America, you've probably heard that phrase, amazing grace, at one point or another. In fact, many of you have probably even heard the song, amazing grace. And most of us in here probably could probably even pick out some of the words to amazing grace. But I'm not going to ask you to sing this morning. Isn't that great? I'm not going to ask you to stand up and sing with me and light candles and things like that and sway to the music. Uh, instead, my question for you is this, is what makes grace so amazing? Why in the world do people say that to begin with? 
And that's really the question that I want to try to answer in our text of Scripture this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, really in verses 1 through 7. Most of you are probably quite familiar with 8 through 10, but I want to focus on verses 1 through 7 and, and take the little bit of time that we have to, to this morning together and to really be able to answer that question, why or what makes God's grace so amazing? And I think that our text really suggests three reasons why. First of all, God's grace is amazing because of where it reaches. God's grace is amazing because of where it reaches. If you look down at your, in the scriptures, in verse 1, uh, again, Paul writes this. He says, and you were dead in, the, in your trespasses and sins. I, I want to draw your attention to that, that those two words, were dead. Now, Paul is writing, uh, or originally writing, to a group of believers who lived in an ancient city known as Ephesus. And when he uses this term dead, he's, he's not speaking so much of them being once physically dead and now alive, but rather spiritually dead, and he says now they've come alive. And when he uses the word dead, understand that he's using it to describe a total absence of life. He's not talking about mostly dead or almost dead or close to dead. He means dead. You guys get what that means, right? We're talking a completely devoid of any kind of life whatsoever. And in this particular context, completely devoid of any signs of spiritual life. What he was doing was he was describing how we and all people are before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are dead. The purpose of him writing this is to let them know just how severe their condition was before God saved them. He doesn't want them to underestimate the problem. He doesn't want to underestimate what their condition was. Again, they weren't mostly dead. They were all the way dead. So he's trying to tell us this, that if, if you don't know Christ, you're not in bad shape. You're in the worst possible shape you can imagine. Now, it's interesting because in the medical field, we use these kind of terms. You've heard these before. People have talked uh, and used the term stable. The patient is stable or the patient is critical. Uh, have you guys heard that before, right? And usually they're using it to describe the overall condition of the person who's th their patient, basically. Now, if you're stable, that's good. That's a good thing, right? If you're critical, not so good. If you're, if you're stable, it means that there's nothing really uh, that you need to worry about. Everything seems to be pretty good. No imminent physical danger to you. But if you're critical, that's completely different, isn't it? That means that things could go bad really quickly. In fact, you're not really doing well now, but things could get a lot worse. But as bad as being in a critical state is, there's still some hope, right? Because what we're hoping is that, okay, they, it could go bad, but Doc, what you're saying is it could go well as, as well, right? Yes, it could go well. So even in a critical state, guess what? There's still some hope. When there's no hope is when the doctor comes by and says, we did everything we could. We're sorry. They've passed. They're dead. Dead demonstrates complete and absolute hopelessness with no possibility of life. And what he's trying to do is, is he comes and he lets his original audience know, and this audience know as well, is that if you don't know Jesus Christ or before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you are in the worst possible situation you can possibly be. You weren't spiritually sick. You were spiritually dead. And that causes a huge, huge problem. Why is it so bad to be spiritually dead? Here's why. Because it is impossible for you to have a right relationship with a God who is alive if your spirit is dead. In John chapter 4, in verse 24, it says this, that God is spirit. 
And those who are to worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Which means if your spirit is dead, if your spirit is dead, if it's, if it's not alive, then you can't worship or have a right relationship with a spirit God. It's an impossibility. Now, why is it that we're dead? What caused this death? Well, he gives us a hint here. He, he tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, what is trespasses? Well, it speaks of, a, a, of deviating from the straight and narrow path. If you are found trespassing, guess what? You're in a place that you ought not to be, right? Yes? When I was 13, no, I'm not going to tell that story. Anyway, I was caught trespassing. I was where I ought not to be. And so what God says is he goes, spiritually, you're dead because spiritually, you're not where you ought to be. He says, but not only your trespasses, but also your sins. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. Now, whose path are we off? God's path. Whose mark have we missed? It's God's, it's God's mark. God said, you're my creation. This is why I created you. Here's the purpose for you. Here's how I want you to live. And the Bible says that every single last one of us have missed that mark. It's true for everyone. It's true for the murderer. It's true for the preacher. It's true for the convict. It's true for the soccer mom. It's true for the child molester. It's true for the missionary. All of us are as lost as we possibly can be in the darkest pit of death imaginable with absolutely no help and no possibility of life. The Bible says this. It says one of the reasons, or when we study the word of God, I find out that one of the reasons I believe that people don't find God's grace so amazing is because we fail to understand our true spiritual condition. Let's just face it. Could we be honest? We're usually pretty benevolent to ourselves, right? We actually think a little bit better of ourselves than oftentimes what we are. We're bad, but we're not nearly as bad as he is or she is. So maybe we're really not uh, all that bad off. And even if I were to convince you today and sit there and go, hey, listen, spiritually you have problems. Some of you might be very honest and be very educated and sit back and say, you know what, you're right. I do have some spiritual problems, but I think of myself as a little bit more of a spiritual cold or head cold, or maybe a, maybe a spiritual flu maybe that I have. Or to be honest, you know, I have been having a little bit of spiritual gingivitis, uh, and, and maybe on my really bad days, I'm placed on like spiritual, uh, maybe um, life support, but dead it's not really that bleak for me. I can handle this. I know that I could become better. But the scriptures are telling you through the power of the word of God and his spirit, it's not that good. It's that bad. That we are all spiritually dead. And if God saves us, it's from this pit of death and darkness that God has to save you and me from. He has to reach far down. He doesn't scoop you off the top and go, hey, you were pretty good. I'm just going to help you get into heaven and have a right relationship. He reaches all the way down to save all of us. You know, I am not much of a mechanic at all. My wife will tell you our kids have learned that if there's a problem with the toy, they bring it to mom. All right. It's kind of embarrassing, but it's just the way that it works. Uh, I should not be working on anything that is broken. I'm just letting you know. Um, normally, if Dan keeps ch chuckling. Yes, I, I, I am helpless when it comes to building things and fixing things. I'm just not very good at it. And right before we were to go off to seminary, um, my truck engine had completely messed up. I don't even know what it's called. It messed up, is that a good word? Is that a good truck terminology? And it messed up, and they were like, you have to replace the engine. 
I'm like, I mean no replace engine. And they go, so you replace engine, you know? And so I'm trying to figure it out. And a buddy of mine's like, man, this is no big deal, dude. Listen, man, you go through all that school, do everything else. You can parse Greek, whatever. You can fix an engine. Ain't no problem. Listen, parsing Greek is not the same as replacing an engine. I promise you of that. And so he goes, listen, I'll be right next to you the whole way. And I said, all right. But you know that's always a lie. You know that, right? So we go into his little shop, and he says, listen, I just want you to take everything apart, but just make sure you don't lose anything. He goes, and especially make sure that you keep track of all of the bolts, because if you lose some of these bolts, they are very, very hard to get back. So make sure that you do that. I said, okay, no problem. He, he leaves me. I begin to unscrew the very first bolt. The first bolt I drop into the engine, and I can't find it anywhere. The very first bolt of the engine. And I'm looking down for like an hour, and I'm looking everywhere, and I go, it's, it's gone. It literally evaporated. It just it disappeared. I don't know where it is. Finally, I took a flashlight, and I'm looking all down. And way down in this deep crevice, crevasse, is this, this little part of this bolt. I'm like, how did it even get in there? It's impossible for it to get in there. How in the world am I going to get it out of there? And I tried everything, everything mechanical you can do. I banged things. I shook things. I rattled things. You guys with me? I got up underneath it, and I, and I made things, you know, to try to kind of get in there. Nothing was ultimately working. And finally, after two, almost two and a half hours, Frank kind of shows up. And he, I'm like, look, man, I got to admit, I didn't want to do this. The first bolt fell down in there, man. I can't get it. It's lost forever. There ain't no grabbing that thing, man. There's, there's no way. It's, it's too far gone. And he looks down, and he walks over to his toolbox, and he opens it up, and he pulls out this thing that looks like an antenna. And it's got a little magnet at the end. And he goes, whoop, puts it down there. You guys know what it is, you mechanical people, right? Me, it was an antenna, right? And so he pushes it down, and he comes up, and here comes the lost bolt out of that little dark ultimate place. And so what Paul is ultimately telling us here is this, is that every single one of us are as spiritually dead as we can possibly be. But what is so wonderful is that God has a special tool to be able to reach people like us. And that tool is his grace and his mercy. And what he does is he reaches down to the darkest pit of sin. And that's where he gets you and I and all who he saves, he gets from the same place. Here's the problem for some of us today. Some of us think that we're just not all that bad. And that's the problem. The problem is we think we're better than what we are, but your God is telling you it could not be any worse than the situation that you were in. But if you recognize yourself as a sinner, he can reach you. See, there are some others that on the other side, you understand very well how lost you are. You understand very, how very sinful you are. You know in your heart of hearts that you have blown it. You know that you're a sinner. And sometimes your question is not, hey, can, you know, do I need to be saved? Your question is, can God save me? And the answer to that is absolutely 100% yes. When Jesus Christ stuck out his hands on a cross and he died, he reached out far enough to reach even you. Because in order to reach you, if he couldn't reach you, he can't reach us. Because we are all on that same level, the bottom of the barrel of depravity in sin in which God has saved us all and will save you today. So why is grace so amazing? It's amazing because of where it reaches. Number two, why is God's grace amazing? It's amazing not only because of where it reaches, but also because of what it reveals. Now, notice, if you will, in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, he says this. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, let me draw your attention to in which you once walked. Very important. Whenever the Bible uses this term walked, it's just talking about the way in which you lived. And so here he's making a very important part. He says, you needed grace not only because you were born a sinner, you were born in sin and trespasses, incapable of having any right relationship with God at all. Do, do, do you hear that? Even our babies, the babies are born, oh, they're so sweet, oh, they're wonderful. The Bible says they were born sinners. They were born depraved. They were born separated from God. And no matter what they do, they are incapable of trying to make a right relationship with God. Now, when we say that, there might be some of us who begin to argue, well, if we were born that way, you've heard this argument, if we were born this way, how can we really be at fault? So what Paul's doing is he's following that same line of thinking and argument, and he sits there and says, see, the problem is not so much simply that you were born that way, that is a huge problem, but you have also willfully chosen to sin. You have chosen to sin. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Some people sit there and go, well, listen, I did what was wrong because I didn't know what was right. Every person on the face of the earth cannot claim that. That is not an excuse that God receives. Here's why, Romans 2. You get to Romans 2, and this is what God says. He says that he has written his law on the heart of every person. Have you ever noticed that even a child understands at a very young age that it's wrong to yell at his mom? He understands that it's wrong to lie, that it's wrong to steal. Where did he get that? Oh, good parenting. Wrong. No. Where did he get that? God and his grace wrote his law on that child's heart so that when he breaks the law of God, at least to a certain extent, he knows that he has broken that law. But here's the kicker. We all know it, don't we? Guys, this last week, there was something you ought not to be looking at. You knew in your conscience, I ought not to be able to look at it, but still, you chose to look at it. I ought not to lie, but we chose to lie. We ought not to steal, but we chose to steal. We did all of these things. What does that mean? It means that we're not only born in sin, but you and I all are guilty because we have willfully chosen to do that which is wrong. We walked in sin. You know what that means? It means that it wasn't something that we just did every once in a while. It was a lifestyle for us. And he unpacks what that lifestyle looks like. He says, not only did you, did you walk in sin, he says, you were following the course of the world. Do you know what that means? It means that you just went the way of the world. You thought as a lost and dying world. Your, your whole motto was, he who dies with the most toys wins. All of our lives basically were this, live and let live. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. These are humanistic, worldly, lost kind of mentality and thoughts and he says, this is what you are following, the same exact way as the world. And then he says, not only that, notice this, it gets worse. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, who is the prince of the power of the air? It's the devil. Man, now we're getting somewhere. Did you know the first person, the first being ever to rebel against God was the devil, was Satan, was Lucifer. He rebelled. And the Bible says that when he fell, Guess what? Men soon fell after, and they all fell together, and now men are not following God, their creator, and doing things his way, but instead they are following Satan and disobedience to God. Every single one of us, he says, is in this case. Now, just in case we feel left out and we're not a part of this, this is how he'll finish this up. He says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Very interesting thing. People love to get up and say, well, listen, aren't we just all the children of God? Not according to the scriptures. Not according to God. The Bible says specifically that there are some that are children of him, and they become children through his son, Jesus Christ. But all those who have not come to faith in God through Jesus Christ are children of wrath. Why children of wrath? Because we who have been born in sin and willfully sin against God, we are due his judgment. The righteous wrath of God is pouring out and storing up for those who have rebelled against him on the ultimate day of judgment. It's what the word of God teaches very clearly. And it's being stored up for that. So those who are not in Christ Jesus are children of wrath. Now here is what the word of God teaches very clearly. He says all of us are in this situation. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no not one. But here's the kicker. What does God's, in light of this, what does God's grace reveal to us? What it reveals to us is that the only way, knowing that we were born in sin and lived in sin and made a life of it, the only way possible for God to save us is by grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. If God had chosen any other way to save us, by our good works, by trying to do better, by trying to keep his law, is there anybody here who could say, based on my works, I should be accepted by God? No, why? Because we've all fallen We've all messed, missed it. We've all missed the mark. We're all off the path of God. Every single last one of us. So if God was going to save anyone, the only way he could save anybody was not by our works, but what? By his grace. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. He says, and we love these words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. The only way to be saved is to receive the gift of eternal life. But I don't know about you, but guess what? There's a part of me in my pride. I don't like that. See, there were some who were sitting there going, listen, I'll do fine. I, I, I'm fine by myself. I know that I can have a right relationship with God if I just try a little bit harder. If I'm just a little bit better father, a little bit better wife or a little bit better husband or whatever it is and this is the lie that so many of us hold on to and what god is trying to say and trying to yell and try to get your attention is hey bro it will never be good enough you can't work your way into a right relationship with me if you're going to have a right relationship with me this is what the grace reveals it reveals you're too lost i can only give you salvation you can't earn it that's what god's mighty grace reveals so it not only reaches, it not only reveals, but it does one more thing. And praise God, this is kind of why we're here today. It's also amazing because of how it raises, of how it raises. Now, I, I love this. The very next words here in verse 4, notice these two words. Look in, look in your Bible. But God. I can't think of two more beautiful, more wondrous, more hopeful words than that. But God. Think about what happened before it. He says, you are lost in your trespasses and sins. You were born in sin, hopeless, incapable of being a believer and being in a right relationship with God. He says, but not only that it was hopeless, because you chose to live a way of the world, a way of the devil. And he says, and because of that, you were children of wrath. The wrath was being stored up for you for the day of judgment. 
And there's nothing you can do about it. And he says, but God. What it means is, God initiates making your relationship and his relationship right again. Did you know in a relationship that has been broken, the only one that can truly reconcile that relationship again is the one who has been offended in the relationship. Did you know that? The person who is offended could cry out, please forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. But until the one who has been offended turns back and says, I forgive you, and initiates that relationship again, it can never truly be right. Well, guess what the Bible says that God did? He was the one who was offended. You and I were the offenders. Guess what he did? He initiated to come back and goes, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. That's amazing grace. And what is it that there, he says, he says and, but why does he do all of this? Have you, have you wondered, why does God do all this? He, he teaches us here. It says, it says, because being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, God loves us. God loves you. It's not just something that he does. It's something that he is. If you're to cut God open, he would be bleeding and, and open with love. He, he loves. There's not a part of him that's not loving. And so in him loving you, how does he demonstrate his love towards us? By extending mercy and grace. What is mercy? Here it is. Not getting what you deserve. What do we deserve? Death? Judgment of God? Because we've rebelled against our creator? Then what is grace? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. What do we get from God? We get life, forgiveness, and salvation in a right relationship with God. That's grace. It's beautiful grace. And, and what I want you to... Did you notice this, though, what he says about mercy? He says he's rich in mercy. It's not just that he gives a little bit of this mercy and this grace. He's rich in it, which means that he is overabounding, without measure, unlimited in his grace and his mercy. Now, how does he demonstrate this mercy and this grace most clearly? The Bible says God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. I'm so sorry that he had to die for us. Why would he go and do something like that? Have you heard the rest of the sermon? Because we are sinners. We are children of wrath. He died for us to be a substitute. So that the wrath that you and I deserve will be taken away from us and satisfied and poured out on a cross on his son, Jesus Christ. And it would be completely taken away from you and me. And then on the third day, he'd be placed in a tomb. And on the third day, he would rise. And when he rose from the dead, it was a declaration for you and I that guess what? God's wrath is satisfied. His son is alive. And through Jesus Christ, you and I can now become spiritually alive through Christ. How do we do that? We repent and we believe. What you do is you believe everything that's been said so far. You look back and you say, hey, listen, it's true. I really am lost. I really am don't have a relationship with God. I believe that. I believe that I was born a sinner. And I believe that I've willfully lived the way that I ultimately live. I can't do enough good things to be able to be accepted by God. It was his whole purpose. It was the whole intent of God to show me all of that. And now... I need him. I recognize that Jesus Christ died for me to take my beating on the cross. And the best way I know how, I just receive that. And here's why that's so hard. Because we, again, want to work for it. But you can't work for it. You just have to receive it as a gift. Now listen, if the only thing that God ever did was save us through his death, burial, and resurrection, if the only thing he ever did was save us from hell, 
and forgive us of our sins? Would that not be enough? Would that not be enough in giving us a right relationship with God? All of that would be enough. But the Bible says he didn't stop there. This is what I love in verse 6. Listen to this. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He says, not only am I going to forgive you your sin, of, some, of which you do not deserve. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to provide for you salvation through my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to make you a child of God, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to make you a child. I'm going to bring you up into heaven with me, and for the rest of eternity, I'm going to show you my great riches of my mercy and glory until eternity. Now stop and think just for a moment. There's a lot of rich people in this world. Warren Buffett is one of them, one of the richest men in the world. These were somewhere around 62 billion, give or take a billion or two, right? All right, so he's a rich man. Poor, uh, his poor buddy Gates is only about 58 billion. He's uh, kind of impoverished, borderline poverty. And, um, and so, I mean, who really cares, right? But say Warren Buffett was to come up to you and says, I want to be a benefactor to you. I've made all the riches all the riches are based on who I am and what I've done. But what I want you to do, even though you're completely undeserving, I want you to be a benefactor of everything that I have. And not only that, I'm not just going to take care of you. But what I'm going to do is for the rest of your existence, the rest of your life here on earth, the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is, the next five days, whatever it is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of this and I'm going to prove to you and find wonder and pleasure in showing you my glory and my riches and proving to you just how rich in these things I am. Now, that's cool, right? So you're not just going to take care of the house? No, I'm going to give you a house and I'm going to give you six others. You're not going to give me a boat? No, you, you, you ever hear the Titanic? I'm going to raise it up and I'm going to give that to you, all right? Very cool. Can I get new furniture? All right, so, so you know, he, he says, this is what I'm going to do to you. That would be an amazing thing. And John Piper says this, I love this quote. He says, do you know why Paul says this in this way? Why he speaks about his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us for the rest of eternity? I love what he says. He says, because that's how long it will take God to run out of fresh ideas about how to show you kindness and his mercy and his grace. He says, when eternity ends, God will have run out of ways to show you kindness. Now tell me, when does eternity end? Never. Ever. Ever. That's why grace is so amazing. Grace is amazing because of where it reaches. It reaches and saves the greatest sinner, which is true of all of us. If there was a competition of who the greatest sinner was, we'd all tie for first place. Because we were born sinners. God's grace is amazing because of what it reveals. It reveals that we were so sinful and there was no way that we could ever earn our own salvation. That he decided because of his great love and wanting to be with us, he just gave it to you. Because if he didn't give it, there's no other way to get it. And third, it is amazing because of how it raises. God's grace raises us up out of death and hell. Raises up, up in the seats of the heavens with Jesus, where God will forever lavish his mercy and grace on you. And he will raise you up if you will repent from your sin and receive him as Lord and Savior. So let me ask you is this a reality to you? 
And the only way you know that that's a reality is because I understand, listen, there's so many here who grew up in the South, and it's hard for me to meet somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, right? I don't mean do you believe like so many believe that you heard the story and, hey, yeah, that's good. I mean the kind of belief that's radically led to a radical change in your life. Because those who know Jesus live for Jesus. Their life, they recognize, is Jesus. He's not a part of it. He is their life. And the way that we demonstrate who are children of God is that they live in that grace and that mercy and that reality that he is greater than anything else. And so my question for you is this. Do you know in your life that there's evidence that God has done a regenerative work in your heart, changed you, gave you a new heart, gave you a new life? Right now, ask Ask yourself this question. This will let you know if you've tasted of his amazing grace. Are you pursuing Jesus? Are you pursuing Jesus? If you're pursuing him, seeking him, seeking to live for him, seeking to tell others about him, seeking to be able to live and become like him, there's a very good chance you've tasted of his mercy and his grace. If not, you may know who Jesus is. You may know what the gospel is. But you haven't known and experienced the fullness of his mercy and his grace. But today you can. Repent. It means to turn. Recognize that what you've done, recognize that you can't be good enough before God. Recognize that every, even though everybody else says that you're a good man in the sight of God, we are not good. We are not comparing ourselves to other men and women. We are comparing ourselves to the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we all fall short. Recognize that and cry out for mercy and he will save you right where you are. Jesus, we come to you this morning.